0: Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel in chapter 29 this morning. We are moving towards the end of the book of 1 Samuel, and this morning we will focus on the second to last story of the book in chapters 29 and 30. If you have one of the Bibles the ushers handed out this morning, it will be on page 216. 1 Samuel chapter 29. The book of 1 Samuel is the tale of two kings, the tale of Saul, a dark and handsome, tall warrior king who is blessed with many advantages. God has given him many gifts, but Saul does not have a heart of faith. The other king is David. David, a young shepherd, an unlikely candidate to be a hero in Israel, an unlikely candidate for king, but yet he is one who trusts in God. He has a heart for God. So as we come to chapter 29, let's do a brief history of 1 Samuel. Israel has asked for a king, and they have done so sinfully. The sin was not in the asking but in asking for a king like all the other nations had. For they wanted not a godly king like the Lord, like the one described in Deuteronomy 18. Rather, the people of Israel demanded a king who reflected their own idea of a, go- of a king, not God's idea of a king. So God gave them what they wanted, and they got Saul. Saul, a king born of human wisdom, out of human desires. And as the years went by, Saul's true heart was revealed. And we see that he is a man who goes from bad to worse throughout his life. Now in the previous 11 chapters of 1 Samuel, prior to chapter 29, we have seen Saul grow more and more jealous of David. David, the Israelite hero who defeated the great Philistine warrior Goliath and brought victory not only to Israel, but to Saul's army. And while David was a faithful servant of Saul, Saul was jealous of David's success. Saul was jealous of the Lord's blessing upon him. And Saul grew more and more intent on killing David. So over the next few years... Saul is chasing David relentlessly. He is pursuing him to the ends of the earth. He wants to eliminate this one he sees as a rival to his throne as well as to his dynasty. This comes to a climax in chapter 28 of 1 Samuel. Saul, in desperation and in sin, Visits the medium or the witch of Endor. He's doing so in order to summon Samuel from the dead. The prophet Samuel has died and Saul wants his guidance. And Saul sums up his situation well in 1 Samuel 28 and verse 15. Saul says, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Saul's failure to trust God and the sin that flows from Saul's heart that is set on his own sinful desires has brought him to a very dark place indeed. And God has abandoned Saul. Then we see David. David, the man who will be king, who has been anointed as king upon Saul's death, David trusts in God. And while Saul is the king the people wanted, a king like us, characterized by sinfulness and rebellion against God, David will be the king chosen by God, who, although a sinner, is a man after God's own heart. And as such, points us to the ultimate king over God's people, The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Savior. The son of David, who rules God's kingdom and will sit on the throne of King David for all of eternity. Now, leading up to to our story that begins in 1 Samuel 29, we find that despite God's protection of David from Saul, David has grown weary after years and years on end of being on the run from King Saul. Saul. And he leaves the land of Israel and takes refuge with Israel's enemy, the Philistines, thinking Saul will certainly not chase him there. You see, David has found an ally in the Philistine ruler Achish. In chapter 27, we learn that Achish gives David refuge in exile, and even lets him inhabit a nearby city, called Ziklag, and from Ziklag as a base of operations. David is raiding nearby pagan villages populated by the enemies of Israel. But David is not portraying it that way to Achish. He is telling Achish that he is raiding Israelite cities. That he is coming back to give the booty from those raids on Israelite cities to Achish. David is deceiving Achish into believing That David really is an enemy of Saul and an enemy of Israel. That David has become a traitor. And David, or rather, Achish is taken in by David's scheme. And foolishly trusts David. But David has put himself and his 600 men in a very precarious position. For Achish thinks David is really a traitor to Saul. And not only enlists David, but expects David and his men to join the Philistine forces in the soon-to-come battle against Saul and the army of Israel. What is David to do? If he refuses to go, he will be unmasked as an enemy of the Philistines and still a friend to Israel. If he goes along to the battlefield with the Philistines, he will be thrust into the fight against King Saul and the Israelite army. Now, out of reverence for God's appointed king, David has already had two opportunities to take Saul's life. And he has refused. David knows it is not his place to remove Saul from the throne. That is... God's responsibility, not David's. As a matter of fact, never has David fought against Israel, but only for God's chosen people. Even his raids on the pagan villages from his Philistine base camp at Ziklag have benefited Israel. David may be in exile with the Philistines, but his track record tells us He is no traitor to Israel or Saul. I have four points in my sermon outline for today. Point number one, God rescues David from disaster. Point number two, David trusts in his God. Point three, God rescues his people from disaster. And point number four, David's gracious spirit points us to Christ. Let's dive into 1 Samuel 29. Point number one. God rescues David from disaster. 1 Samuel 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. You see, the Israelite army and the Philistine army are facing off. Verse 2. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, "What are these Hebrews doing here? They don't understand. Why are there Israelites marching to war with the Philistines?" Verse four. I'm sorry, halfway through verse three. And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines. Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Now David had been serving Achish for 16 months at this point. What are the commander's reaction? Look at verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, "...send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down to battle with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands. And David, his ten thousands. The commanders of the Philistines reject David. They are perceptive. How foolish to let David go to battle with them. The risks are just too great. They know that David might turn on them and fight for Israel. After all, David's the one who inspired the song that is evidently famous with the Philistines just as it is with the Israelites. David has killed his ten thousands. Well, let me ask you, who are the ten thousands they're talking about? Because this is the song the people of Israel were singing when they came back from the battle with Goliath? The ten thousands are Philistines. Those are the ones David has killed. So God uses the commanders of the Philistines to rescue David from the horns of this dilemma. The all-powerful God uses even Israel's enemies to deliver David from disaster, from between this rock and a hard place that he has gotten himself into. You see, the options without God's intervention here were all bad. Go fight the Israelite army and Saul and David could never have been king over Israel refused to fight, and David's elaborate ruse would be exposed. And he and his band would likely have been subject to attack by the Philistines and likely killed. And if David does, as the Philistine commanders suggest, and turn against the Philistines in the midst of the battle, well, David risks failing to preserve Saul's life, and it may even cost him his own life. Well, the death of the next chosen and anointed king of Israel would not advance God's plan. Notice, David does nothing here to extricate himself from this situation. It is God who delivers David. God provides the way out for David through the Philistines. This is not a lucky break. Rather, this is divine providence, this is God's hand over the situation. The mercy of the Lord reaches out and snatches David from disaster even in the midst of his foolishness. God is sovereignly and providentially rescuing David. He does this in our own lives. Many, if not most of the time, we don't even recognize it. How many Trials and difficulties has the Lord saved you from? How many bad things would you be involved in if it weren't for the Lord's hand rescuing you? I think often we are blind to the work of the Lord in our own lives and how His providential care and protection is over us each and every day. Each and every time we drive our cars, each and every moment of our lives. Point number two David trusts in his God. So now David and his men have been sent home to Ziklag from the battlefield. They embark on a three day journey, anticipating a reunion with their wives and children. Look with me at chapter 30 and follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. While David was gone, the Amalekites raided the camp. They took all the wives and children and livestock and burned the city to the ground, destroying all their possessions. Now the Amalekites had been a constant thorn in the side of Israel. But this raid was likely in retaliation for the raids David had been initiating from Ziklag on the Amalekite villages. These Amalekites took advantage of David and the fact that he and his men had been drafted to go into battle, leaving the city defenseless. And imagine, it's a three days' journey back home across the desert to get back to Ziklag. They arrive tired, hungry, and thirsty. And upon returning home, they find nothing there. Not only no food, no drink, no warm bath, But more importantly, they find everyone is gone. Taken captive to be sold into slavery, or perhaps taken in as the wives and children of their captors. Their sorrow is so great. They have wept to exhaustion, they have wept until they have no strength to weep any longer. They are in the depths of despair. Now let's look at the first half of verse 6. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters, They are so upset that their sorrow turns into anger and rage. His men were thinking of stoning him. When our children are at stake, there is an anguished response in our hearts, isn't there? That anguished response can be fierce. We often have an almost irrational love for our children. And when they are threatened and when things go wrong with our families... We get emotional. We get angry. You can almost hear these men castigating David. We shouldn't have gone on this expedition. The risks were not worth it. Your leadership has brought us to this, David. We should have stayed home and been content here. All were turning against him. The metal of David's leadership is being tested here. He was greatly distressed. He had a full-scale rebellion on his hands. And this time, he is truly alone. Now in the past, when Saul was chasing him, David always found allies. He found people to help him. Someone would come alongside and assist him. But here, he is alone. There is no one standing up for him. Has to be about the lowest point in his young life. How does he respond? What's he to do? Look at the very end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David didn't phone a friend. He didn't look around for who might come to his aid. A sympathetic ear. He went to the Lord his God. In his darkest hour, when he thought his wives were gone, when he thought his men were going to kill him, David found his strength in the Lord. Contrast that with Saul. When Saul was in trouble in chapter 28 just a chapter before, he turned to a witch of Endor, to a medium, someone who could bring back the dead, the dead prophet for him. Someone who could give him an experience, give him magic in his life. Contrast that with where the Lord Jesus turned in his darkest night. The night before Jesus is crucified, He's in the garden. And what does he pray? Not my will, but your will be done, Father. Jesus turns to the Lord, to his Father. David turns to the Lord. This glimpse of David gives us a peek into the kind of king. Our ultimate king will be. The kind of king Jesus Christ is. David then in verse 7 calls for the priest. And in accordance with God's law, comes to his God for wisdom. Read along with me in verse 8. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He, God answered him, Pursue. For you shall surely overtake and shall secure and shall surely rescue. God tells David to chase after them. David trusts in his God, and in response, his men rally around his leadership. That brings us to point three. God rescues his people from disaster. Look at chapter 30, verse 9. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook. 200 of David's men are so exhausted after their weeping and mourning in Ziklag, after their trip back to Ziklag Ziklag from the battlefield, after their chasing after the Amalekites, they can't go on. They're tired. They're weak. They're exhausted. They stay behind. David and 400 men push forward. They keep moving. And God provides again. In verses 11-15, to God in His mercy upon David and His men and their families has then come upon an Egyptian slave of the Amalekites who has been left behind and shows them the way to the Amalekite camp. We pick up the story again in verse 16. And when he had taken him down, when the Egyptian had taken David down, Behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. The Amalekites are having a party with all the good stuff they brought back from their raids, all the good stuff from Ziklag, from the cities of Judah, from the cities of the Philistines. It is a festival. But something's about to happen. Verse 17. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. And David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. David is victorious. David and his men have had victory beyond their wildest imaginations. They have recovered the wives and the children. Not one of them is dead or missing. Not only that, they gathered the spoil from the Amalekites. Not just the stuff they took from Ziklag, but the stuff they took from everywhere else. David's victory over the Amalekites is so great, you don't hear about them in biblical history for another 300 years. They pass off the scene. God's victory through David is an impressive one. It's a miraculous one. It's a providential one. What were the chances of finding this lone Egyptian slave in the desert who knew where the Amalekite camp was? I mean, these Amalekites had at least a three-day head start. The Egyptian had been three days without food. It's a miracle of God. God is sovereignly working through the circumstances to raise his King David and restore him. Interesting how quickly we go in this story from tragedy, hardship, to victory. There's a lesson here for us. When we are in difficulty... God's hand is still upon us. God's hand is there, even when we don't recognize it. He is with us as His children. And He will bring us to a better place. It may not be in this life, but it will be in the next, if not here. God will rescue us. He will deliver us. Well, David had learned to take his shelter in God. Not in men or circumstances. And God had rescued his people. He had rescued David. He had rescued his family from the, from the disaster. And it really seems like the story should end here, doesn't it? All the families are reunited. They're back together again with the spoils of the battle, belonging to them. But there's one more important lesson to be learned from this episode. That's point number four. David's gracious spirit points us to Christ. Look at verse 21 of chapter 30. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Bezor, And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we had recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, to the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Well, what we see here is David's gracious and generous heart. We see David's leadership showing forth here. Note verse 24. David doesn't hesitate. He strongly states what is going to happen. And he does so in opposition to the worthless men. Now, the worthless men, you say. Well, let me tell you. David's army was not composed of the Navy SEALs of the day. Okay. His army is composed of those who are in trouble. Of those who need to get away from the authorities. Of those who need to hide. Some surely are motivated by intense loyalty to David. But amongst his crew, there are worthless men, wicked men. But you know what? As I'm reading this story, I'm not sure I wouldn't have agreed with the worthless and wicked men. I mean, who went off to the battle? Who put their lives at risk? Who did the work? Who fought the Amalekites for almost 24 hours before victory was given? Well, it's the 400 men, right? Haven't they earned the spoil from the battle? Don't they deserve it? They worked for it, right? What did the rest of them do? Well, they were too tired. They stayed back at the brook by the water and rested. Waited for the boys to come home if they would ever come home. But David, in verse 23, recognizes who gave them the victory. David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. David recognizes that the Lord gave them the victory. He won the battle. Does this remind you of anything? Reminds me of Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is telling a parable. A parable about laborers in a vineyard. Jesus tells us that the master of the house hired some of the workers in the first hour of the day, and they agreed to work for a day's wage. The story goes on. Other laborers were hired in the third hour, some in the sixth, some on the ninth, and the last in the 11th hour of their 12-hour workday. Yet when the day was over, all received the same wage for the day's work. Now those who had started the day at the very beginning, and had worked through the scorching heat of the day, and had worked all day long, were not happy that those who came an hour before quitting time got the same reward that they did. I mean, didn't they earn more? Didn't they deserve more? Well, Jesus finishes the story this way. The master of the house says, I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? Let me ask you. Where would we be if we asked God to give us what we deserve? We are sinners. We deserve God's judgment. Yet we rely on the mercy and the compassion, the generosity, the grace of our Lord. We would be in deep, deep trouble if God gave us what we deserved. but God sent Jesus Christ. Therefore, as His children, it is required of us that we be loving and gracious and generous and giving and merciful to others. This is the effect the Gospel has on our hearts. Freely you have received forgiveness in Christ. Undeserved forgiveness. And freely we are to give it to others. We are redeemed sinners. We have been shown mercy in Christ. Christ has taken the punishment for us. He has taken the punishment we deserve for our sins and paid for it in our place on our behalf so that we might live. When we feel the impact of the Gospel deep in our hearts, we are gracious, generous, and merciful to others. We are forgiving. We are loving. But when we forget the gospel, we can so easily turn. The best of us can so easily turn and be cynical and be critical and negative and sarcastic and fault-finding We do this in our relationships with others, in the closest relationships to us, with our husbands and wives, with our children. Yet God has not saved us for this. He has not redeemed us for this. When we hear about the sins of others, when we see them, we should not be shocked. For we are sinners. We too deserve judgment. We should not harbor resentment and be unforgiving. David's gracious and generous spirit points us to Christ and to the gospel. Well, what's going on in this book of First Samuel as a whole and in this story? Well, it's clear that God is sovereignly working. His hand is controlling these events. David is sent away from the battle, and due to his wife and his town being taken away, he can't be anywhere near the battleground. Yet the following chapter, chapter 31, on that battleground, Saul is killed. Matter of fact, read that with me. Chapter 31, verse 1. The battle is now joined. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Makishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. God has so orchestrated these circumstances. So Saul would be put to death in order that David would become king. As a matter of fact, there is none of Saul's descendants left after this. No one who has a rightful claim to the throne. The throne will be as God has appointed, be given to David. David didn't know all this. David's off fighting the Amalekites while Saul is in the battle with the Philistines. David is delivered and rescued, Saul is judged and condemned, and defeated. And while God was doing all of this, He was rescuing David, causing David to turn to him in faith, rescuing David's family and men from disaster, and demonstrating grace and generosity to those who didn't earn it. You see, the Lord is working when we don't even realize or recognize it. The Lord brings difficulties into our lives to strengthen us, both as individuals and as His church, and to cause us to turn to Him, to trust in Him, and to grow in Christ. You see, the victory is won. Jesus is risen. We are forgiven forever, rescued forever And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We are redeemed people. We are so very blessed. Let's pray. I pray we would rejoice in the Gospel of Christ even today. Christ died for our sins. I pray we would not rely on ourselves, but on You, Lord. I pray we would trust in You and find our strength in You. We need Your power to walk in such a way as to not trust in ourselves or succumb to the deceitfulness of sin. Rather, Father, give us eyes to see our own sin. Reveal it to us. Bring us to repentance. I pray we would repent of it. Father, may we turn from our sin and trust in Christ alone. For He sits at the right hand of the Father right now today, interceding for us. I pray we would trust in the Son of God, Jesus, who was raised so that we too might have eternal life in Him. May we be encouraged by Your ongoing love and care for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.